All right, so um, I want you to close your eyes for just a minute before we read our next passage. And I want you to imagine that your family has been invited by a very important person to attend a feast at a very highly regarded vocation. So the question is, as you continue with your eyes closed, imagining this invitation, what are some of the factors that will determine for you whether or not you will attend? Maybe you will ask who this very important person is. Maybe you will ask who else might be there. Maybe you will ask what will be on the menu? What kind of food are they going to serve at this feast? Or maybe you're going to begin looking through your closet and determining what you're going to wear to this fancy feast, whether or not you're going to need to go shopping. Will you maybe invite the rest of the family or not? Now, imagine that you've been invited to participate in another feast by another very important person. And let's assume that the same deciding factors apply. But the challenge now is that you can't attend both feasts at the same time. Come on in, Eden. There's a seat here. You can't attend both feasts at the same time. All right, so now open your eyes. The question is, what, is the, what are the, some of the deciding factors that will help you decide which one of the feasts to attend? What are some of the things that you would need to know about these feasts to know which one of them that you wanted to go with? Which one of them you wanted to bring your family, your friends with? This morning's lectionary reading, the one that I'm going to read in just a minute, is about two separate feasts. And there's a good chance that you ha have probably read one of them, or at least heard about it, multiple times. But the other one, there's a good chance you probably have not heard it. Or if you have heard it, you haven't heard it in its context, particularly in the context of the way that Matthew tells it. So if you haven't heard the one, chances are you haven't heard the second one correctly. So what I'm going to do is I, I'm going to ask you actually to read these texts, ask you as a church to read these texts together. And since there are two separate feasts, I'm going to split it up. And I'm going to ask you to highlight the important elements. So I'm going to split us up into two groups. And one group is going to read the first passage, which is Matthew 14, 1 through 12. And the second group is going to read the second passage, which is Matthew 13 through 21. And after you read this passage, I'm going to ask you to consider a group of following questions. So um, we've got uh, Dave and Chris, if you will, uh, pass out. So let's, let's let from uh, Dave to Gwen here on the, this side be group A. And let's let that side be group B. And then, uh, so you can get together with a, a friend, a companion, or th even three of them. Feel free to move your chairs. The only thing I would just ask is that after you finish, if you would just scoot them back so we can get back in the circle. Um, but uh, just read, these passage, read, read the passage together with your friend or companion or uh, uh, several of you. Um, and it's better to read in community, not to read by yourself. So don't just read through it by yourself. Read it to, to each other. And then um, they're going to come back, and then in just a second, they're going to hand you a list of questions that I want you to spend some time considering. So um, the, the first task is to, do we have enough? Wow. 
It's good. On the one day we decided to do this, we had more people than we planned. All right. This is good. All right. So, um, so the first task is to read, read the passage together. So if you will, go ahead and find a partner or three folks that you can just read together. Uh, read this passage together to each other, and then we're going to hand out the, the uh, other questions. Go. Okay, as you're finishing these up, we're passing out a, a, sep uh, a separate handout with questions on it. And so you can uh, answer these questions together. Um, we also have pencils if you would like one to take notes with. Like a pencil, just raise your hand and I'll, I'll pass them out. Anybody else need pencils? Pencils? You're welcome. Anybody else would like a pencil? Okay, well then coming back together then, let's, let's get some reports from the groups uh, about what are some of your answers, what are some of your, what's some of your feedback? Um, before I give you my, my kind of overall assumption, uh, now it's important to notice everybody has the same questions, okay? Everybody has the same questions, but you've got two different texts. And, the, and one group of you have text 1 through 12, verses 1 through 12. Another group of you have 13 through 21. So these are intended to be two separate parallel passages that are read together. You're reading them separately so that you can kind of make sense of what you get when we talk about the other one. So what, uh, what, what kind of feedback do we have? The, any of them, but particularly the first four. Yeah. How miraculous God is, okay? How miraculous God is. So God is, God is miraculous. Any, anybody else? Who's the host since we didn't read it? Who's the host? In the, who's, who's hosting this feast? Jesus. Jesus, and they're saying Herod. Is it really Jesus? Could you argue that it's not Jesus? Is somebody else? Jesus said to somebody else to feed them, right? Right? Yeah, so the disciples. Either way, Jesus or the disciples. Yeah. Uh, where did the food come from? So they, the five loads and two fish came from somewhere, right? So the food came from the people, whereas here the food came from Herod, right? So in one sense, you've got, you're not really sure who the host is. Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe it's the disciples. Who prepared the table? Who set, where did the food come from? Well, we're not really sure. That's kind of part of the, the point of the story. They had so much, but the food just kind of appeared. Here, the food with the table was set. This was a party for Herod, right? Um, so by that simple nature, aren't we exclusive and they're inclusive? Okay, so tell me more. Guys? Tell me more. I mean, if it's a king's birthday party, then he certainly invited people mm. as opposed to the crowd that just gathered on the hillside or yeah. wherever they were. 
Okay, so in this one, she's saying this, this story is exclusive. The only a select group of people have been invited. This one is inclusive. Basically, everybody's there. And not just everybody, but if you were to look at your passage and kind of get an idea of what that everybody looks like, who are they? There are crowds of people who have been following Jesus, but why were they following? The passage tells you. He had been healing them, right? Right, so they were, this, this was a group of people largely, as we've read the story, who were sick, who were broken, who were marginalized for whatever reason, and they have started to follow Jesus. So they're the ones that are in the second feast, stark opposite from the, from the first one. Yeah. Um, any other notes? Let's look at question number six. I said the host in the story claims to be a representative of God or the gods. Now, unless you were reading it during that time, you might not know that, but that's the truth. Um, in fact, actually, the phrase son of God is a Roman phrase, not a Hebrew phrase. So that came out of the Roman theological context. The phrase son of God was an, a, a title attributed to Caesar, uh, which the early church then bought on and took on as a title for Jesus. But here, so, so the question is, if the VIP in this story, the host who's hosting you, is in this, in this story, is a representative of God, what is the nature or character of God that you can guess is there in that story? Yes, Martin. Mm. Abundant, miraculous, giving, okay, compassionate. All right, what? What's yours look like? Narcissistic. Authoritarian. Authoritarian. What? Hedonistic. Hedonistic. Okay. Narcissistic. Anybody else? Yeah. Cowardly. Okay. I think we interpreted it, or I did anyway, as just a god of fear. Okay. Because Herod. You know, didn't initially want to put John to death because he feared the crowd, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? Yeah. So he's obeying not what he thought was right, but what he feared the crowd. Yeah. And then, then when um, uh, you know Mrs. Herodias says, <laughs> you know, hand me, hand me the head of uh, John, he didn't want to do it then either. But what you know, out of respect of his oath, right? He's afraid of what other people are going to think of him. Mm -hmm. So again, he doesn't do what he thinks is right. He yeah. does something out of fear. So if we've not kind of caught it here, we're, we, the two stories are this. We've got the feeding of the 5,000 over here. And we've got the story of the murder of John the Baptist over here. And so what Mark is saying is this is a, the, the, the God represented here is a God of fear um, who's more concerned with popularity and how the crowd is going to see him. Right, And he's afraid to act because the whole point, and not only that, but seems to want to make people afraid as a way of kind of shoring up his authority. So um, I wanted to just give you a chance if you were to read this passage on your own and try to figure out what would an alternative to this be. Now, obviously, everybody has their own stories, but if you were not knowing that the gospel writer Matthew had constructed an alternative to your story. What would you, does anybody have some interesting things? What would you have said about the answer to number seven? What would an alternative, what would be the opposite story to this one? Well, I think each story is the opposite of the other. Yeah, right, right. But if you were to construct it, 
right? Because I said in, in, the, in, the, in the question, I said, without looking through your Bible, I don't want you to cheat. Reading the passage that you've been given, what would an, what would an opposite story look like? So you're in, you're in group A, okay? So the opposite story to, to Herod's murder kill, is? I'm not gonna kill John the Baptist, that's not what I wanna do. Okay, so wouldn't be murdering. Right. So the opposite of murder. Compassion, mercy, okay? Okay, what else? Yeah, yeah. So there's only a few, there's only a little bit of food, and everybody could have started killing each other over it. Just decide who's going to have it, right? Uh, but that's not what we get. So, so if you were to, you know, it could be a zombie fest, right? With just a little bit of food, and everybody's fighting each other over it, right? Okay, what, what other thoughts do we have about the, these two passages? Right, so the first passage is, is clearly about a feast, the feast of King Herod. So um, if you haven't already thought through this, is the, the, the feast about King Herod is celebrate his birthday. And in this feast, Herod lives in a world of power and authority. And in order to make people happy, he has to make promises based on the belief that he can get anything he wants by doing anything he wants to anyone he wants. But this is also a feast of exclusion, as we've already noted. Only a select few of people are invited, and those who are invited must gain some favor with the king in order to be recognized. It's a feast of scarcity and greed. Those who attend are treated to pretend like they can have anything that they want, but this is really a celebration that there is a limited amount of goods to go around, and these people have been invited, with, they've been given the privilege to share. So part of the beauty of this feast is that you get to attend and other people don't. It's a feast of fear and death. Those who are in power use violence to protect themselves from the fear that those, of those who challenge their right to rule. It's a feast of death as those who are critical of the kingdom are treated with contempt and suffer violence because they have challenged the king's rule and method. So that's the first one. But the second one is a feast of compassion, mourning, inclusion, hope, abundance, and life. And by the way, if you notice, the whole reason for any of these stories, for this whole story, and this is what's particularly interesting about Matthew, is the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is in all of the Gospels. And it's so important, it's sometimes even listed twice and told differently in different ways. But this passage in Matthew, according to Matthew, the reason this passage is important is because it's a result of hearing what? That John the Baptist had been murdered. So when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been murdered, he went off to mourn. And he looked out at the people and he had compassion on them. And that's when this feast comes out. The second passage is about, um, is, it's, it's, Found in all four of the Gospels, it's a feast about the reign of heaven. And as we've heard already, remember, Jesus is obsessed with the reign of heaven. And for the last few weeks, we've heard parables of Jesus about the kingdom of heaven. And remember what the word parable means. What does the word parable mean? To lay side by side in order to compare things. And so it's interesting that we've finished a whole series of Jesus giving us parables, saying the parable of the kingdom of heaven can be compared to, and now we've got a story 
an action scene where something is happening. Jesus is not teaching, but in this action scene, you have the author, Matthew, laying out two stories side by side as if you can compare them. Remember when we started this whole thing back at the beginning of the book of Matthew, I told you, like Chekhov's gun, right? That the whole story in the Gospel of Matthew starts out with Herod Antipas, right? And Jesus' birth. And this violence of the ruler murdering all these innocent children in order to keep his power, right? And so this is the same thing here we've, we've found. So this second feast is intended to be read with the previous one, side by side, so that we can see what difference the reign of heaven is like. It's a feast of mourning for those who suffer, an offer of wholeness to those who are broken. It's a feast of healing for those who are sick. A feast of sustenance for those who are hungry and thirsty. It's a feast of radical inclusion. The feast for a large crowd who has been following Jesus around, filled with people who have been excluded, broken, and sick, but now they find hope and healing. It's a feast of hope and abundance. So those who began in fear that there would be enough, they discovered that there was actually more than enough around them. And even some was left over. Economies based on scarcity and privilege, they privilege some at the exclusion of others because they believe that there are limited resources and only few deserve to have access to them. But the reign of heaven is based on an economy of abundance. Rather than a world filled with people who are envious of each other's possessions, this is a rule inviting everyone to participate to a chance to see that there's actually more than enough for the well-being of everyone. It's a feast of giving. We could make the assumption that Jesus had an inner circle of privileged people. You can could, you could make that assumption. But this passage actually calls us to upend that assumption. Because when the disciples came to Jesus and said, send the crowds away, Jesus actually told them, no, you feed them. Even at a moment when we see clearly in the passage, Jesus wanted to be alone. It's a feast of compassion. Compassion is not the same thing as pity, though. Pity comes from a place of privilege where one person looks down on another and says, I've got the power and the resources. I can fix you. But compassion is the moving of a feeling of love and empathy. Jesus didn't look down on them as outsiders. No, he welcomed them in. Rather, he saw himself as one of them. Unlike Herod, who called his guest a feast and a celebration of power, Jesus invited the crowd to join them in a celebration of empowerment to discover that they already had everything that they needed among themselves. It's a feast of life. While the world is spinning out of control, people who have lost hope and health have come together to find healing and wholeness and to be restored to life. Those who are hungry are filled. This morning we're gathered around a table together. And we've been invited to celebrate the reign of God in this holy feast that we call the Eucharist. Everybody say Eucharist. Eucharist. Now most Protestants like us, they call this communion or the Lord's Supper or some kind of other thing. But I want us to learn again to call it the Eucharist. Again, what's the word? The word Eucharist comes from the Greek word Eucharistia, which means thanksgiving. This is a feast where we're participating in is a feast of thanksgiving. Unlike Herod's death, this table calls us to participate in the reign of heaven, a feast of compassion, of inclusion, of abundance, and life. 
Now, the major debate during the Reformation is if I do this right and you have the right people using the right words, that somehow or another something fantastic happens to the bread and the wine, to the Eucharist itself. But since they didn't find the language of the text, if you study Christian history, you'll find out that since they didn't find the language of the text, the uh, language for this in the text, the church tried for centuries to try to figure out a way to explain how did these things change. They even invented numerous philosophies as a way to describe it. The great reformers Luther and Zwingli, they met in 1529 during a thing called the Marburg Colloquy to come up with a solution so that they can agree on what happens at the feast because the disagreement had now splintered Christianity into multiple places. But they failed. Largely, Luther came up with a conclusion called consubstantiation or the real presence of God, that God is over and under and above and in all of it. Zwingli, however, he said, no, no, the feast is symbolic. It's about, it has some kind of meaning. It's supposed to teach us something. But there was a third voice, and that third voice is hardly ever recognized, and the reason is, is because he was part of the Radical Revolution, the Radical Reformation, called Anabaptist. And this guy's name was Pilgrim Marpeck. Now, Marpeck said that Zwingli and Luther were both right. But he suggested that they were wrong because they couldn't come to an agreement because they focused on the wrong question. The question that they were asking was, when does this change and how does it become something other than it is? But what Marpeck said was, it's not, the question is not really supposed to be asked what happens to the bread and the wine. It's what happens to the people who participate. The question we should be asking, Marpeck said, is not what happens to the bread and wine, but when do the people become the people of God? Is not when does the Eucharist become the body of Christ, but when do we become the body of Christ? Marpeck said that it's actually this feast that creates the church. That without this feast, we can be something else, but we're not a church. And it's not because he means without the bread and the wine turning into something, but without us turning into something. In other words, by practicing this feast together, Marpeck is saying the goal of the gospel is that we get transformed into a gathering of people who carry the body and blood of Christ. By joining in this feast together, we're choosing to participate in the reign of God in opposition to the reign of the violent rulers of the world. We're continuing the feast of heaven's reign that Jesus began. We're choosing compassion over fear. We're choosing inclusion over exclusion. We're choosing abundance over scarcity. We're choosing life over death. Now, we talked a few weeks ago, and you may have noticed, remembered this, before the 4th of July, we were talking about the cross and how, much, how important the symbol of the cross became to Christians. But the symbol of cross is actually a symbol of death. Part of one of the arguments in the Reformation was, well, can we actually take that symbol of death and make it our own? And they said, well, we need to take Jesus off it because Jesus is resurrected. But if you look at the early church, the cross was not a symbol of the early church. And what we talk, said was, the, what was the symbol? A fish, a fish. One of the earliest uh, relics of the church is this stone where they believe that they, they discovered it in the 4th century, and it's written about in the Didache. It's the, the stone that on it has this mosaic with bread and fish. This symbol of this feast is what constituted the church. 
It was by participating in the reign of God, this feast together, that we become what it is that Jesus was calling us to be. So today, by joining in this Thanksgiving feast together, we're invited to take up God's call to become the body of Christ, to become a people who live into this reign of heaven, who follow God's call to bring restoration and renewal to the world. What's important here, I think, to notice is that you're given a choice. You can choose. You're invited to both. The question is, which one of them you get to choose to attend? If you're lucky enough to sit at Herod's table, then maybe you can forget it all and imagine that the world is one way. If you're not lucky enough to sit at Herod's table, then you maybe might get to sit and watch. Hopefully you don't end up like John the Baptist. But if we follow Jesus, then what we get to do is by celebrating this, we get to show the world what an alternative looks like by the way that we live together. Would you join me in prayer? Creator God, thank you for this miraculous gift that you have given us. This gift that we get to participate in together. This gift of love and hope and wholeness and peace. Creator God, as we celebrate and serve together this feast that you've given us. Help us to be made into the body of Christ. Amen. If you'll join me, the communion service, which is printed in your bulletin. Set before us is Christ's table. It's a sacred table of sacrament and remembrance. This table has been opened to all and a gift to all who follow Christ's way of love for those who are broken and desperate for healing and wholeness. It is for those who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. We come, not because we must, but because we may. We come, not because we are fulfilled, but because in our emptiness we stand in needs of God's mercy and assurance. We come, not because we believe we are right, but because we are hungry to see our wrongs be made right. Not because we are just, but because we are thirsty to become lovers of justice. Not in our strength, but in our weakness. We come to this table as brothers and sisters.